Praise the Lord. God bless you all, and welcome again to our Bible study series. We meet on the telephone and also online every Wednesday night at 7.30. Uh, we thank you for joining us live. If you can't, you can also access the recordings and the notes of all of these Bible studies in, in several different ways. You can go to our website, new-life-ministries.org, and look for the downloads there. You can also go to mixlr.com and follow the broadcast name New Life Ministries. You can also subscribe to our podcast, and you'll get all of the updates automatically sent to your smartphone. In any event, we're ready to go again tonight. We are in part 7 of what will be a 12-part study in the book of Acts. And we've come to a very, very important, it's all important, but this one's especially important, uh, section where the gospel finally goes to the Gentiles. And as we were trying to explain last time, uh, it might be hard for us, most of whom are not Jewish, to grasp just how profound this step in history was, that after centuries of Israel, and only Israel, being the chosen nation, the chosen people of God, God was now breaking down a wall, opening up a door, not just for Gentiles to also partake in the blessings of Israel, but for Jew and Gentile to now become one in one body called the body of Christ. And I want to reread uh, the last few verses in Acts 10, just so we kind of get back into the spirit of things as we move forward tonight. If you are following in the notes, we're on page 112, <clears throat> and this is... Roman numeral number five, the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles. Uh, without a whole lot of review, Peter was sent for by Cornelius. He has gone to the house of Cornelius. There's a large gathering of Gentiles there waiting to hear Peter preach the gospel to them. He gave a very short, concise message and as we will further learn tonight, it seems that he didn't even get a chance to finish his sermon, and he was rudely interrupted, I'm being funny, rudely interrupted by the Holy Spirit, who fell on everyone in the room. They were all baptized in the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. And that's where we want to pick it up again tonight, reading from Acts 10, verses 44 to 48. It says, while Peter was still speaking, notice that, he is not done yet, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. Most of you know by now how fond I am of that word, all. He came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter, were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. So, while Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit comes suddenly, like he had done on the day of Pentecost, and fell on all of them. And as I pointed out last time, there was no... Uh, background music, there was no tear-jerking altar call, nobody did anything, nobody laid hands on anyone, Peter didn't instruct them on how to receive the Holy Spirit, he's just preaching the gospel and bam, the Holy Spirit fell on everyone. Let me say something again tonight, God does not need our help, 
He can do these things quite well without our assistance. And I think many times we, and I'm including myself, we get in the way thinking, oh, if we change the lighting and have a little bit of smoke or fog on the stage and, you know, the right background music, then people will get in the mood and they can receive the Holy Spirit. We don't need to do any of that. We need to seek God and earnestly believe that He wants people to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It says again, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard. Everyone who had an ear, everyone who heard what Peter was preaching, apparently their hearts were opened, they received the message, and bam, the Holy Spirit fell on every single one of them. And we talked about this last time. The word that's used there means he came on them powerfully. It literally means to seize with violence, to fall or press upon. So this was a mighty anointing that fell on everyone in the room. And so amazing was this that the Jewish believers that came along with Peter, we saw, they were astonished. They were absolutely amazed. It literally means to be put out of your mind or to, like, go crazy. They were going crazy seeing this with their own eyes. And notice, God was very careful to have eyewitnesses there, not just Peter, but six others who had come along with him to witness the event of the Holy Spirit for the first time falling on the Gentiles. This had to be dramatic because it was such a big deal. If there had just been a quiet altar call and they all prayed and kind of asked Jesus to be their Lord, we wouldn't be real sure whether or not God had accepted them. But as we will see tonight, the fact that God started by baptizing them with the Holy Spirit It was his way of showing that from heaven they had been accepted just as the Jewish believers in Christ had been. And that from this point on, he was making no difference between Jew and Gentile. The middle wall of partition that we read about in Ephesians 2 had been broken down. This mystery that Paul speaks about in Ephesians 3, is finally unveiled that the gospel is for the Gentiles together with Israel. Now, it says in verse 46, For, for they heard them. Why is that important? Well, verse 45 we need to read to understand why the for is there. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. Okay, The gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. How did they know that? Verse 46 answers it without any question. For, because, here's the reason why. Here's how they knew that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on them, for they heard them speaking in tongues. It was the very first evidence, just as the one seen in Acts 2, showing that the Holy Spirit had fallen upon them. They had truly been baptized in the Holy Spirit with the initial evidence of speaking in tongues tongues. The text is so clear, I'm amazed at how so many people try to twist this around and make it say something that it doesn't. It's real clear. They received the gift of the Holy Spirit. How did the Jewish believers know that? They heard them. What did they hear? They heard them speaking in tongues. And that little word, for, is a Greek word, and I've given this in the notes just to emphasize this. It's a Greek word, gar, and it means assigning a reason. 
It's used in argument, explanation, or intensification. It means because or seeing something. So this word is assigning a reason or an explanation for why verse 45 says they saw them receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Here's the reason, here's the explanation. They heard them. They heard them speaking in tongues. Once again, we see something we've already looked at. We're not going to go back and look at these verses again, but again, we're reminded of portions of Scripture like Mark 16. These signs will follow them that believe. The sign of speaking in tongues is listed there in Mark 16, 15. The sign of tongues is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 14. That's exactly what it is. It's a sign. It's an initial sign that someone has been baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit has fallen on them. So, this was monumental. Gentiles are now, for the very first time ever, experiencing what the Jewish believers first experienced on the day of Pentecost, and many other Jews after them had by this time also received the baptism in the Holy Spirit. But this is the very first time that the Spirit is being poured out on Gentiles. Now, verse 47, it says, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? Now, not to dampen the celebration and the excitement, but Peter is very, very purposeful here. He wants to make sure that the whole gospel gets preached and the whole gospel is fulfilled in these Gentile believers. Some might have thought, well, obviously, if they've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, they've already received Jesus, so we can skip water baptism. No, no, no. Peter goes right to the heart of the question. Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. God had now made it crystal clear that the whole gospel, repentance, salvation, water baptism, baptism in the Holy Spirit, the whole package was for Jew and Gentile alike. And because these Gentiles had received the same gift, those are the words that Peter will use in the next chapter when he gives testimony about this event, received the same gift of the Holy Spirit, and in the same way that Peter and the other disciples had received on the day of Pentecost. Now they need water baptism. Notice verse 48. So he ordered... King James says, commanded. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. It does not say he suggested, or he hoped, or he implied. No, he commanded them. Now that you have become believers, now that God has given you the gift of the Holy Spirit, I order you, I command you, in the name of Jesus Christ, to take water baptism. <clears throat> That's a strong word, ordered or commanded. But water baptism is not an option. It's not a suggestion. It is a commandment. Jesus gave it in Matthew 28 when he gave the Great Commission. And baptism is a part of making disciples. Again, it's not 
an option. I don't care whether you've already received the Holy Spirit or not. That was not the issue here. They already had the Holy Spirit. God had already accepted them as his children, but they still are being ordered, commanded in the name of the Lord, to take this step of obedience. And that's why it's important. Romans chapter 1, verse 5, it speaks about, and I'm quoting, obedience that comes from faith. Obedience that comes from faith. If you become a true believer, then show it. How do you show it? By obedience. How does a brand new believer show that they've received a new heart, a new mind, they want to be a new creation? They're willing to obey God in something so simple as getting into the water and being baptized. That's how simple it is. And James puts it a little bit differently in his epistle, Show me your faith by your works. Now, we're not saved by the works, but if the faith is real, it should manifest in works of obedience. So, water baptism is the first step of obedience that God requires of a new believer. Now, it's not my intent to give a big long teaching on water baptism tonight, but just in case there might be anyone listening tonight or listening in the future to this recording, let me be very clear. Water baptism is not an option for a Christian. It is a commandment. It's a, a very important part of our discipleship. It's actually called God's way. I'm quoting those words, God's way, and it's also expressed in these words, God's purpose. So this is a part of God's way, God's purpose now under the new covenant. Let me read two portions of scripture, both from the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 7, verse 29 and 30. It says, All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right. Well, what's God's way? Acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. Notice that direct connection. They acknowledged God's way was right, because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves, because they had not been baptized by John. You have two groups. One group takes baptism under the ministry of John the Baptist. Why? Because that was God's way. They acknowledged that God's way was the right way, and therefore they took baptism. Another group rejected water baptism, but it says here they rejected God's purpose for themselves. You see, God has a purpose in water baptism. And to reject water baptism, you're rejecting His way, His plan, and His purpose. Very important part of the gospel, very important part of our obedience to the gospel. Look also in Luke 20 verses 1 to 8. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, the chief priest and the teachers of the law together with the elders came up to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Now, I'm going to pause for a minute. That's a profound question. John's baptism, was it from heaven or 
from men. Was this a divine revelation that came from God, came down from heaven? Or is it just some other religious ceremony that men invented? That's the question. Water baptism, is it from heaven or is it from men? They discussed this among themselves and said, if we say it's from heaven, then he will ask, why didn't you believe him? And let me insert here, why didn't you take baptism? They didn't. They didn't believe John, they didn't believe it was from heaven, and therefore they didn't take baptism. But, if we say it's from men, all the people will stone us, because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So, they answered, we don't know where it was from. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. If you put these two passages together, and we're not even looking at later writings in the epistles of Paul, particularly Romans chapter 6 on the subject of water baptism, if you just look at these two passages, it's crystal clear. Water baptism was the plan, the purpose of God. All those who realized this was God's way, they obeyed it by being baptized. Those who rejected it and refused to acknowledge it was God's plan for their lives, then they didn't bother. They didn't take water baptism. Okay, so, Peter orders them all to be baptized in water, and thus they were. So, to summarize, Peter goes to the house of Cornelius. He preaches a simple gospel message about Jesus Christ, put to death, raised back to life. Now anyone who believes on him can receive forgiveness of sins. They obviously all believed that. They received the good news of the gospel. They became believers. They were baptized instantly in the Holy Spirit, and they were all quite willing to be obedient to Peter's command, and they took water baptism. Now, again, it's hard for us to imagine what kind of a stir this would have created in the whole Jewish community. And word got back very quickly to all of the Jewish believers in Jerusalem and in Judea about what happened in the house of Cornelius. And that leads us right into Acts chapter 11. I want to read from verse 1 all the way down to verse 18. As I pointed out last time, it's no accident that Luke, the writer of Acts, devotes so much space in the book of Acts to this one event. And we're actually now going to hear Peter retelling the story, and we'll get a few new details, but basically retelling the whole story that we just read about in Acts 10 to prove to all of the Jewish believers that, yes, God has now accepted the Gentiles. They are being included in the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, here we go. Acts 11, 1 to 18. The apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Let me pause. This again helps us to get a little deeper into the mindset that was prevalent at that time. It was wrong to go into a house like Cornelius's house and sit down and have any kind of fellowship with the uncircumcised Gentiles, certainly not to sit down and eat with them. And news has now gotten around that Peter did all of that. 
verse 4. Peter began and explained everything to them precisely as it had happened. Let me pause again. We need to be very careful to be able to give clear and precise accounts, testimonies of what we witness as Christians. Peter was ready, and he tells us in his uh, first epistle, be ready to give an explanation, be ready to testify about the hope that's within you. So he was set for this one. Peter began and explained everything to them precisely as it had happened. And here begins his account. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds of the air. Then I heard a voice telling me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, Surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time, Do not call anything impure that God has made. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. Pause. Notice, as I pointed out earlier, the importance of these six eyewitnesses that had gone along with Peter. They've returned with him now, and obviously they're sitting right there beside him to corroborate his testimony. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So, if God gave them the same gift as he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. So, in verse 1, as I pointed out, news of this spread very rapidly, and this was not small news. This was a big deal. I can't emphasize that enough. A big deal. This was an earthquake. The Gentiles have received the Holy Spirit. The Gentiles have received the Word of God. Peter went and preached in the house of Gentiles. They all got the news. And it created a big stir in Judea and Jerusalem. Thus, they started criticizing Peter. They criticized him when they heard about this. And after hundreds and hundreds of years, the news that was starting to spread around was, Jews are no longer the only ones. God is letting non-Jewish outsiders enter in now. And the circumcised believers, 
They were very slow to accept this. They start criticizing Peter, and not knowing any more than they knew, this was justifiable. What was their criticism? You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. They were forbidden to do that up until this point in time. They had a valid criticism. And had not Peter precisely explained everything, they might have continued with their criticism. But Peter explained everything to them, blow by blow, He gives a precise account of everything that happened. (coughs) Remember, not only did Peter enter into a Gentile house, he had entertained Gentile guests back in the house where he was staying, in Joppa. So he's got a, a twofold problem here. He had Gentile guests in his house in Joppa. He went to be a guest with Gentiles in Caesarea. And now they've all heard that. Hard for us as Gentiles to really wrap our brains around this. We take it for granted now because, after all, we're Gentiles. We received Jesus. We took water baptism. He filled us with the Holy Spirit. No big deal. But Romans 11 says it is a big deal. And even if we're Gentile believers, we should understand the dynamics of this. The gospel was first taken to the Jews. God decided it's now time for the Gentiles. That phrase is actually found in Romans 11, the times of the Gentiles. So only by God's choosing are we presently still in that period of time or dispensation called the times of the Gentiles. Now, Peter explained everything to them. In defending his actions, he gave a very careful step-by-step account of his vision of the sheep, the animals, Cornelius being visited by an angel, the arrival of the messengers just at the right time at the house where Peter was staying, uh, going to Cornelius' house, and the way the Holy Spirit supernaturally came upon them. He explained all of those details to demonstrate this was not the workings of man. This was a sovereign God saying, now the door of faith has opened to the Gentiles. Now, in the course of his testimony, um, as Peter is explaining about the vision and being sent for uh, by the messengers from Cornelius, Acts 11.14 is very significant. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. Let me get the context here. When the messengers came from Cornelius and they arrive at the house where Peter is staying. Um, Peter goes down because the Holy Spirit told him to go down and meet them. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house. That's Cornelius. And he sent them with these words, Send a Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He, Peter, will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. Now, this is extremely important also. We talked about this a little bit in the beginning. Cornelius was a righteous man. He was God-fearing. He was a friend of the Jews. He had a lot of good things going for him. But he was not yet saved. Good works do not save us. Faith in the gospel is the only thing that brings salvation. So even Cornelius needed for Peter to come to his house. Why? And I'm quoting verse 14. He, Peter, will bring you a message through which 
you and all your household will be saved. Not works through which you'll be saved, a message through which you will be saved. So, Cornelius still needed to hear the gospel. And in Romans chapter 10, I want to read verses 12 to 15. Paul summarizes this very nicely there. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. There was before the house of Cornelius, but now, writing after the fact, there's no more difference. Very very clear. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So, Peter was sent for, and he was sent by the Holy Spirit to go to Cornelius' house. Cornelius and all of his house needed to hear the preaching of the gospel. How can they hear without someone preaching to them? So, Peter has to come and preach to them. Once they hear, they can believe, and once they believe, they receive the free gift of salvation. Peter goes on in verses 15 and 16, and testifies... As I began to speak, notice the wording's a little bit different now from Luke's account, which explains why I believe Peter never even finished his sermon. As I began to speak, it doesn't say when I finished my sermon, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but I'd like to see a lot more of this happening in our churches, where the Holy Spirit just falls on people, even interrupting our sermons, interrupting our song service, interrupting whatever it is that we're doing, so it's clearly not something manufactured by man, soft music, an altar call, or anything we've done, but supernaturally the Holy Spirit descends from heaven and falls on them. That's what Peter says. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. <clears throat> Just like he came on us at the beginning, is really what Peter's saying. It was just like Pentecost. It is just like what happened to us in the upper room. Without any warning, suddenly, like a mighty rushing wind, the Holy Spirit came and filled all of us. By the way, I would like to highlight one word there, beginning. The Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Why does Peter choose that word, beginning? Well, we've already pointed that out. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost was the official beginning of the church. That was the beginning. And that would forever be ground zero, the starting point for Peter, the other apostles, and the early church. It began on the day of Pentecost with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Interestingly, ministry to the Gentiles has the exact same beginning with the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. Peter now realizes that what happened on the day of Pentecost was just a partial 
fulfillment of the promise he had heard when Jesus was still here on earth. I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now it's happening to Gentiles also. Everyone can call on the name of the Lord. No difference now between Jew and Gentile. All have the same access by faith to Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins, salvation, justification, water baptism, and all the rest, including the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Verse 17 is a powerful verse. We need to park here for a few moments. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us, same exact gift, if God gave them the same gift as he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? Well, let's extend this out a little bit. Remember, Peter is coming under sharp criticism for what he has done. Maybe, just maybe, he's also implying, who are you to think you can oppose God? Who are any of us now to think we can stand in the way of what God has started to do? He's opened the door for the Gentiles. How do we know that? He gave them the same gift of the Holy Spirit he gave to us. We believed in Jesus. They can believe in Jesus. We received the baptism in the Holy Spirit. They received the Holy Spirit. Who of us is now going to try to fight against that? If we do, we're opposing God. Who was I to think that I could oppose God? I like that word same. God gave them the same gift. They have now received the same anointing that Peter, James, and John received. They've received the same power that the apostles had received on the day of Pentecost. Same power, same spirit, Romans 8.11, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in all of us now. There aren't two different Holy Spirits. There's one Holy Spirit, one anointing, one power, and they've received it. They received the same identical gift, power, and anointing that we received in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. How then, Peter questions, can we deny these Gentile believers the invitation to be baptized and to come into fellowship with all of us? How can we deny them that privilege when God took the initiative by accepting them from heaven and pouring out his spirit on them? Peter could not deny them the invitation to now be baptized and enjoy fellowship in Christ with all the other Jewish believers. The middle wall is now officially broken down. Jewish believers are now compelled to recognize Gentile believers and vice versa. They're all on equal ground. No difference between Jew and Gentile. They all have the same Lord and everyone. Jew or Gentile, who calls on the name of the Lord, will be saved. The door of grace, or the door of faith, had now been opened to the Gentiles. This wasn't something that, you know, a bunch of preachers or apostles met together in a secret meeting and voted on. This was not done by human decision. It was by God's supernatural, sovereign act of pouring out His Holy Spirit on all of them. And 
Obviously, the Holy Spirit was at work in this meeting as Peter is sharing this account. They started off rather hostile, criticizing Peter, but as they're hearing, step by step, his blow-by-blow account of what happened, their hearts are softening, and they are also coming to realize, my goodness, God has opened the door to the Gentiles. And so in verse 18, here's their response. After Peter finished his testimony, it says, When they heard this, they had no further objections. No more objections. No more criticism. They're 100% convinced. They had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, God has granted even the Gentiles. Notice that expression. They still keep using that. Even the Gentiles. Because remember, for centuries, they were second-rate citizens. You had Jews, and then all the others, the nations. God has granted even the Gentiles, repentance unto life. That's a profound statement, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But again, the Holy Spirit was moving. The Holy Spirit was working. And thankfully, Peter had these six eyewitnesses with him, who I'm sure were nodding their heads as he was giving this testimony, saying, yeah, that's exactly what happened. We saw it with our own eyes. As he was preaching, Holy Spirit came on them. How do we know? They were all speaking in tongues. And so, upon hearing Peter's account, and being able to discern, this is important, being able to discern what the Holy Spirit was doing. They recognized the hand of God in all of this. And their minds began to change. They began to adjust to this major shift that God was bringing about. A new dispensation was opening up. The times of the Gentiles. They recognized that. And to their credit, even though initially they criticized and had a little trouble, they're coming around. They're like, wow, this is cool. Even Gentiles are getting saved now. This is God. And They praised God after hearing Peter's testimony. They went went from criticism to praise once Peter's testimony had been completed. I want to zero in on these words. And I could actually preach a whole sermon on this. I have in the past. I won't tonight. I'm just going to touch on it. But it's very profound. And you need to listen very carefully to these words. God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Key words. God has granted. Repentance is something that God commands. It's a commandment. It was the very first word out of Jesus' mouth when he began preaching the gospel. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the first thing Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. What are we supposed to do? Repent and be baptized. So, our response to God is repentance. But, this shows another whole angle. God must grant it. God must grant repentance. In other words, there's an action initiated by God. God changes the heart. God grants something that enables a person to respond to Him by turning from sin and putting their faith and trust in Him. God has granted even the Gentiles, repentance unto life. Notice, 
repentance precedes life. You gotta repent if you're gonna come to life. But you can't repent unless God grants the repentance. God grants repentance. Let me put it another way. Repentance is a gift from God. Without the gracious, loving, merciful operation of God in the heart of a sinner, a sinner will never repent. I am 100% convinced about that. I don't know if that rattles your theological cage or not, but after 43 years, I have come to a total assurance of this fact that apart from God's operation in the heart of a sinner, they are so fallen, they are so reprobate, they can't repent. It's not just something we can turn on like a switch. God has to grant repentance. And notice, the Apostle Paul uses this exact same expression when he writes to Timothy. 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 to 26. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Well, Timothy's a servant of the Lord, and Paul's giving him some wise counsel here. The Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, and yes, Timothy would be opposed. Any servant of the Lord, sooner or later, is going to be opposed by people. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct, don't argue, don't fight, don't quarrel with them. That's not the right way. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct, and here's the key, in the hope, here's the hope you need to have when you're trying to instruct an unsaved person who's fighting with you and opposing what you're trying to teach. In the hope, that God will grant them repentance. Same exact words that we just read in Acts 11. That God will grant them repentance. Again, translating it, that God will somehow change their heart, graciously dispose them so that they're willing to listen to the Word of God and turn from their sins. In the hope that God will grant them repentance. And you know what? Now when I'm ministering to unsaved people, or I'm praying for a family member or someone else who's refusing to repent, I have hope. I don't base my hope on the way they're responding to me. They may be snarling and hissing and fighting and throwing things at me. That doesn't give me any hope. My hope comes from God. What is my hope? In the hope that God will work on them, open their heart, and grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. Notice the order there. God grants them repentance, and that then leads them to a knowledge of the truth. Then notice what happens and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. So until God grants a sinner or a hardened backslider repentance, note several things. They're not in their right mind they have to come to their senses. They're not seeing things clearly. They've been blinded by the devil. They've been deceived. They are not in the knowledge of the truth yet. They've been lied to by the devil. They've been blinded by the devil. And they've been taken captive by the devil to do the devil's will. So only when God grants repentance does that lead them to the truth, 
bring them back to their senses, and enable them to escape the trap of the devil. How do they escape? By repenting. What is repentance? It's say no to sin. It's to stop sinning. It's to turn from those things that God says to stop doing. But, here's the mystery. And some people think it's either or. It isn't. It's both. God grants repentance and He commands repentance. I can't do it all on my own, but I must do it. God grants me the repentance. I now have to respond with true, heartfelt repentance. I need to stop sinning. I need to turn from darkness to light. I need to give up the ways of Satan and embrace the ways of God. But granting repentance is God's business. And their conclusion, coming back to Acts eleven eighteen, now we realize God has granted even Gentiles. And I would suggest they're implying they realized they had also been granted repentance. So then, God has now granted even Gentiles repentance unto life. Repentance unto life. Only repentance leads to life. Every other path ends in death. Only true repentance leads to life. We're going to stop there because we're coming to the end of a section and we're going to start a whole new section next time here in Acts 11 where we're actually going to see the formation and the founding of the first Gentile church in Antioch and it would become a major center of Gentile outreach and evangelism It would become the springboard, eventually, for the Apostle Paul and others to take the Gospel forth from Antioch throughout the Gentile world. So, recapping tonight, Peter was chosen by God, and remember, he was the one given keys to the kingdom. He unlocked the door for the Gentiles. The door of faith was opened by Peter, in the house of Cornelius. God confirmed it with a supernatural sign from heaven. He baptized all of them with the Holy Spirit. Everyone there knew that this was God. They knew that they had received the same gift that Peter and the others had received on the day of Pentecost, for they heard them speaking in tongues. The sign, the initial evidence of tongues was there, to prove the fact that God had accepted them. Okay, a lot more to cover in Acts 11 next time, but let's close here for the time being. Father, I thank you and I praise you that you're sovereign. You, O God, know the times and the seasons. You, O God, know when to unlock doors. And Lord, this is such an amazing story of how you unlocked the door through Peter to take the gospel for the first time to the Gentiles, fulfilling numerous prophecies that had been made centuries earlier that all nations, not just Israel, all nations would be blessed. All nations would see the light of salvation. And Lord, we just have to praise you and thank you because I think most of us listening to this tonight are Gentiles. And there once was a time when we were cut off from God. We had no hope. We had no access to the promises, the grace, the mercy of God. But we're so thankful tonight that you opened a way for Gentiles to come in and join with the Jews and become one in the body of Christ. Lord, you're amazing. We thank you for your gracious operation in our hearts and lives, granting us repentance to turn from our old lifestyle, to embrace the truth of the gospel, 
to obey the gospel. And Lord, yes, to find repentance unto life, escaping the trap, the snare of the devil, who had taken us captive to do his will. Now we've been set free to do your will. And Lord, we surrender to you as we bring this Bible study to a close. Have your way in each one of our lives. Fill us with your Spirit. Lead us and guide us by your Spirit. Help us, O God, to fulfill your way, your purpose, and your plan for each and every one of our lives. I thank you for each one that's joined us tonight. Bless them. Keep them. Make your face shine upon them. Be gracious to them.